Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under a chair in the seat in front of you. Grab that and then turn to page 1,217. 1,217. We are continuing in our work through the epistle to the Corinthians, the first letter recorded in Scripture that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And as we gather this morning, we will continue to persevere. I don't have any great introduction, so we're just going to dig right into it this morning. And so before we do that, let's pray together. Our Father, we need your help. We need your Spirit to guide and direct us. We need to see the truth. And so we ask that you would open our blind eyes, open our hard hearts, open our deaf ears to see, to hear, to understand the truth and transform us for your glory. If there's anyone here who's not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, may they recognize him for who he is and trust in him today. And for those who are Christians, may we grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we study your word. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to start in verse 1. I'll read through verse 13. Please follow along. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone thinks that he stands, take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. This is God's divine revelation. May we listen to it and be encouraged by it this morning. The theme is this, heed Paul's dire warning and trust God's great promise. Heed Paul's dire warning and trust God's great promise. In addressing the issue of food offered to idols, Paul had given practical encouragement as to what character qualities are fundamental to living a life glorifying to God a life that would lead to not falling away from Christ. And so at the end of chapter 9, he taught this, avoid eternal disqualification through discipline and self-control, run to win the prize. Now Paul uses the Israelites' rejection of God's mercies as an example of the consequences of the Corinthians continuing their current idolatry. So he ends chapter 9 with a warning about disqualification. 
He ends with a warning about disqualification after telling them to run to win the prize and what that looks like and what that's going to demand. It's going to demand self-discipline. It's going to demand self-control. And so they should run with that goal in mind. They should run to win the prize because either you run and finish and win the prize or you are disqualified. Now, what does that mean? And you think, we, we talked about that last week. I went into great detail. But now we're going to see exactly why I taught that disqualification means eternal disqualification from eternal life and a life spent or an eternal life spent in hell forever. That's the disqualification. Not every theologian or pastor agrees with my interpretation. So there are good men who disagree. But I believe contextually this is the best case. And that's because as we read through chapter 10, it becomes, in my mind, absolutely clear of what this disqualification looks like. Because Paul moves from that transitionary paragraph into where he was aiming for all along. And he does so, first of all, by example. And so what we see in these verses is the example of the Israelites. The example of the Israelites. So Paul has transitioned into this area of warning. And he's done so through the last few verses of chapter 9. So now he goes into where we're at in chapter 10. He says, I want you to know, brothers... I want you to be aware, brothers. I don't want you to be unaware. So what might they be unaware of? What might they not know? Well, they were aware, or they should have been aware, or most of them would have been aware of the history of the Israelite people. They would have been aware of the very topics that Paul is going to bring up. But they might not have been, and Paul was worried that they were not aware of the significance of these events. Pay attention. Many of you were raised in church. You were taught through Sunday school. You were taught by your parents. You know the stories. You were raised on them from a young age. Now, some of you didn't. So some of you hear the stories I'm going to reference today, and you might not even have read through them one time. You might be completely unaware. You might not know these things. But many of you do know them in the sense of you could tell the story, or at least parts of the story, but do you know the significance of the events? Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware. I do, I do not want you to be uh, ignorant of not only the events, but most importantly, their significance. And so in the beginning of this chapter, he uses the word all multiple times. And so notice he's, he continues to hit the same, the, the information in a similar way to teach one point. All our fathers were all under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized. All ate the same spiritual food. All, anybody getting the idea? You say, why does he say it so many times? Why didn't he just say all and then just have all the things go? Because he's hitting it every time to drive home the point. All the Israelites participated in all the same physical blessings. And so what does Paul do here? He references stories that should be known from the Old Testament. Our fathers were all under the cloud. And we're all rescued by passing through the Red Sea. Now you can write down these references if you want to read the stories yourself if you're unfamiliar. Or familiarize yourself with them again. This information is given to us in Exodus chapters 13 and 14. And Paul says that these two events, the cloud leading the people of Israel, the cloud even protecting the people of Israel from the Egyptians who are following them, and then the rescue of those people through the Red Sea, this is analogous to being baptized into Moses. So, all were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So he ties those two activities and he connects them to being baptized into Moses. 
Now, if you were in Sunday school, you have a better understanding of what he means by baptized into Moses. Uh, but if you missed that, there's a lot there. What Paul is saying is that, that like all the Corinthian Christians, the Israelites were all professing followers of Yahweh who had been saved and baptized. He's using Old Testament history as an analogy for New Testament activity. All the Israelites were redeemed out of Egypt. They were all saved in that sense, saved out of Egypt. That's the analogy. They were then all saved through the sea, and that's an analogy of baptism. And now he ties the cloud and the sea into this idea that all of these Israelites were, in a sense, baptized, and they weren't baptized into Christ because he's using Moses as a type of Christ, as Moses as the Savior. They were baptized into Moses because it's not water baptism. They weren't put underwater like the New Testament talks about. It's not the same thing, but it's an analogy. It's an analogy for active, visible participation in the people of God. Who are the people of God? Who are the people that are following Yahweh? They are the people that God has redeemed out of Egypt led by a cloud, and saved through the sea, a type of baptism. All of those people, all are taking active participation in what God has done, and they are all recognized as followers of Yahweh. Are you with me? And the word all is said about five or six times to drill in the point that every single one of them was participating. Now, an analogy is a comparison for the purpose of explanation or clarification. So these historical pictures of God's old covenant people are a comparison to explain something now. Paul then says, yet, nevertheless, verse 5, nevertheless, they didn't all make it into the promised land. That baptism didn't keep them from being tempted into idolatry and falling short of the prize. What's the prize? Paul doesn't mention it specifically, but I believe the prize is the promised land. The promised land is a picture of eternal life with God forever in the blessed land. It's a connection of following the promised land to the original Garden of Eden. It's pointed for in the eternal state with God and forever, typically pointed to as heaven. So we see that they were redeemed out of Egypt, they were baptized through the sea, and they were going to go to the prize, which is the promised land. Yet, though they were all baptized, not all of them made the prize. Notice back to chapter 9, winning the prize. So, again, this is analogy. This is using uh, Old Testament events as an example for explanation or clarification. But it's more than just that. Notice verse 4, or actually verse 3, and all ate the same spiritual food. That's referring to Exodus 16. What happens in Exodus 16? What's the spiritual food? Manna. God brought divine sustenance, and he rained it down on them every day, except for the Sabbath, on them and met their needs. That's spiritual food. Now, it's not that the food made them spiritual or that this food had spiritual significance. It's talking about the idea that this is divine, this is from God, this is a supernatural food that came to them. That's Exodus 16. And all drank the same spiritual drink. Exodus 17. So manna and water from the rock are analogous to the bread and wine of communion. 
The rock that they drank from was the spiritual rock, pointing from the rock of the Old Testament that gave them sustenance to, who's the rock? Jesus Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, the rock that Moses struck with the rod was that actually, physically, Jesus Christ in the form of a rock. No. What is this? Analogy. So you have to be able to, to do this. I know reading uh, comprehension is, is dipping in our schools and, and dipping in our culture, but hopefully you can follow along. Okay, These are analogies pointing to something greater. Trusting in Yahweh to provide for you from a physical rock is analogous to trusting in Jesus Christ to provide for you as your spiritual rock. We sing songs about Christ the solid rock. I stand on Christ. He's the rock. He's also our sustenance. He's our provider. He's not just a provider physically. He's a provider spiritually. And so when you come across that in the Old Testament, you should see through that historical event and those actual things happening to the spiritual reality underneath it, around it, above it. These are analogies. Now notice this. Even though God gave them spiritual food, even though God gave them the manna and the water, it didn't keep them from being tempted into idolatry and following short of the prize. So he gives these four analogies, and then verse 5 Nevertheless, all, 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 all had all of these wonderful blessings. All of them participated in them. Yet, nevertheless, not all of them made it. With most of them, God was not pleased. And they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, I want you to understand this. The Old Testament is filled with types and shadows. The New Testament teaches you how to understand the Old Testament as a Christian. One of the things that we struggle with is reading the Old Testament simply as a Jewish person would read it before Christ. So we have to understand how to read the Old Testament after Christ, post-Christ. Christ has come. The New Testament teaches you how to do that. The apostles teach you how to interpret the Old Testament in light of New Testament fulfillment and therefore how to apply its lessons in light of their greater fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So who does the cloud point to? Christ. The salvation through the Red Sea. Who does that point to? Christ. The manna from heaven points to? Christ. And that is represented in the bread of the Lord's Supper. So we can take the New Testament pictures and analogies of the bread, at the Passover bread that becomes the bread of the Lord's Supper, and it ties the Passover bread of the Old Covenant and the redemption of Israel to the bread of the New Covenant, the Lord's Supper. And it brings all that whole picture together. So when you read the Old Testament Passover, you see pictures pointing forward to Christ as the Passover lamb who shed his blood on the cross, who gave his body for us. And now in the New Covenant, we participate in the Lord's Supper. And those things are all tied together. The pictures point ahead. The water from the rock points to the blood that flowed from Christ on the cross and represented in the wine of the Lord's Supper. Now, is that how you read the Old Testament? Or do you just read the stories? It's interesting. I want to get all the facts, get all the information. Do you just know the history and the stories in the historical context? Or do you see the types and shadows, the analogies, the metaphors pointing forward? Now, before you can read the Old Testament in that way, let me just ask you, do you read the Old Testament? 
Well, I don't know those stories. I, I've never read those stories. I, I'm a, I just don't know. I don't know this stuff. Pastor, what do you expect of me? I'm just a regular person. I'm not a pastor. Well, you can't be unaware of the Old Testament because if you're unaware of the Old Testament, what happens when you read 1 Corinthians 10? You're like, oh, that's, I have no idea. Even the, You have no frame of reference. How many times in your life do you have people use illustrations, metaphors, and analogies in regular conversations, and you don't know the backstory? <laughs> this is done all the time in literature. It's done all the time in news. There's always times where people are using something that they think you should be aware of as a reference to illustrate or explain this other thing they're talking about. And so in the good old days of America, everyone would have read the Bible even in school, and they would be aware of the stories, and therefore, writers would use biblical illustrations and biblical stories to illustrate their point in regular, even nonfiction literature, or fic fiction literature, even into stories. All of those things you had to have a frame of reference. But now when you read old things like, you know, Moby Dick or uh, other things, I can't think of old stories now off the top of my head, you read those things, and they have Bible verses quoted by Captain Ahab or someone else, and people in school don't even know those are coming from the Bible. They don't realize all of the quotations from Scripture in Shakespeare because they don't have the frame of reference. And now we as Christians read the New Testament. If we're going to read anything, we read the New Testament. And we don't have a frame of reference for the stories and the illustrations and the analogies of the Old Testament. We are illiterate Christians who don't know even the stories. And therefore, when Paul uses these stories, we are like, I don't even know what he's referencing. Do you have a problem with that? Should we have a problem with that? Now... First of all, you have to read the Old Testament and know the story. Second, do you read the Old in light of the New, or are you unaware of the fulfillment? So we read the stories, we start to know the stories, but do we recognize how Christ fulfilled those things, how they're fulfilled in the New Covenant, how the Old Covenant and the New Covenant fit together? Do you see Christ in the Old, not named explicitly, but pictured in the types and shadows implicitly? Or are you unaware of how to interpret these things? I wish, I wish I could just make it easy for you and I could just give this stuff to you just in, in this idea of put the cookies on the bottom shelf, just spoon feed it to you in simple ways. But the Bible's not simple like that. It can be understood simply in many cases, but the pictures, the types, the shadows, the fulfillment, the connections are so deep. We have to work hard at this. And we cannot be ignorant and unaware because even in the New Testament, we come to these things and we don't have a frame of reference. So I guess you're just dependent on the pastor to make sense of it for you and just believe everything he says. Amen? No, don't say amen to that. Don't say amen to that. I suckered you in. You got to watch it. No. Don't believe the pastor. Read the stories and recognize how Paul is using this, using these Old Testament stories. Now, I want to give a word of warning, a lot of warnings today. This is not spiritualizing the Old. This is not taking the Old Testament out of its historical context. This is seeing the greater fulfillment and what the Old is pointing to in its historical context. One example of this that we sing is Christ the True and Better. And so you can look that song up if you're familiar with it in church. You can listen to it. You can look at the lyrics. You can see Christ the True and Better is, a, is a, an example of how to do this, how to see the Old Testament types and shadows and their fulfillment in Christ. And so it begins to give you a framework by which to read all of the Old Testament and see all of these things. What we cannot miss 
is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of every promise, of every law, of every prophecy, of every part, of every picture, every analogy, every type in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is the only Savior to save you out of your slavery to sin. Every human being born in this world is born a sinner, captured by sin, enslaved by sin, like the Jews, the, the Israelites were captured and enslaved in Egypt. And so they needed God to come and rescue them. And so God comes, he sends a prophet, he sends a, 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 a messenger, he sends someone ahead, and he calls out the redemption, but God is the one who saves them through these mighty signs and wonders. He brings them out, and the last uh, plague on Egypt is which one? The death of the firstborn son. They are redeemed through the blood of the firstborn son. And they are saved from that same curse being on them by doing what? Killing a lamb in the place of their own firstborn son and applying its blood across the doorpost and the lintels of their own door. Wow, that sounds kind of interesting, doesn't it? That sounds like Jesus Christ was the sacrificial lamb who took our place so we don't have to die for our sins so that we might be redeemed through the blood of the lamb, the almighty lamb, Jesus Christ, who died for us. Do you see it? That's a glorious picture. And so then the people are brought out, but the enemy still pursues, does he not? Egyptians come after them. Pharaoh changes his mind. And they pursue, and they get them cornered with the sea and mountains. We're going to get them now. These people can't even fight. We've got chariots. And what does God do? He saves them, and he saves them through water. Form a picture of baptism. He baptizes them through the sea. They walk through on dry ground. They live through the sea, and the enemies are drowned in the sea. So we are saved through the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. And that redemption is pictured. It has nothing to do with our salvation. It's pictured through the baptism that we participate as we are lowered into the water and brought out of the water. And then we are given the law. Because does the law save? Were the Israelites saved out of Egypt by the law? No. God rescued a rebellious, wicked people who didn't like him, who didn't care for him. He rescued them, and he saved them, and he baptized them. And then he gives them the law because Christians live, not live by the law, are not saved by the law. And so all of those laws are given to the people of God as a demonstration that we walk by faith in keeping the law as God's people. And then God will take us at the end all the way to the promised land where the presence of God dwells in the, with the people of God, with, with no sin, with only the people of God there. This is the picture. This is the New Testament pictured in signs and wonders and types and shadows and now fulfilled by whom? Jesus Christ. Do you trust in Christ alone to save you from your sin? Do you trust that Christ is the one to take the place and take your punishment in your place? Have you demonstrated that faith through baptism and pictured it to everyone else that you're a child of God? Are you walking in obedience to the law of God as a Christian, not to be a Christian? And are you looking forward to that eternal life with God forever in heaven, the promised land? That's what it means to be a Christian. And you could have recognized all of that in picture form in a generic form, even just by reading through the, book of, the books of Genesis and Exodus. Wow. 
That's why when Paul and Peter and the apostles are preaching before the New Testament is written, they can preach the gospel from which testament? The Old Testament. They can preach the truth of how people are saved through Christ, through the Messiah to come, in the Old Testament. And then they can take those very same stories in writing letters to the people who are Christians and profess to be Christians in churches and write these things out. Isn't that amazing? Now here's the bad news. I've already said it, but I'm going to say it again. Yet most of the Israelites were disqualified. All participated, yet most were disqualified. They never made the promised land. They failed to obtain the prize. They died in the wilderness. Do you recognize a picture there, a type and shadow there? Literally, their bodies were scattered all over the desert. Why? Because with most of them, not all of them, but with most of them, God was not pleased. Although all the Israelites participated in all the same visible blessings, not all the Israelites made it to the promised land. Most of them were disqualified on the way. Now, what does that have to do with the Corinthians? I mean, what is Paul doing? Is he just like, you know, is like one of those teachers who gets on a rabbit trail in Sunday school class and like all of a sudden jumps, he loves history so much he's got to tell all these stories of the Old Testament and it makes no sense and has nothing to do with the lesson and all of a sudden he gets back on track. Is that what he's doing? Well, it depends on what, teach, what kind of teacher you think Paul is. <laughs> is he a better teacher than your Sunday school teacher? Hopefully so. So do you see it? Here's the point. Just because all the Corinthians in the Corinthian church participated in all the same visible, visible blessings doesn't mean that all the Corinthians will make it to heaven, that all the Corinthians will have eternal life. This is Paul laying out the warning for the Corinthians. This is Paul talking to all the professing Christians who say that no matter how they live, no matter what they do, their eternal life is absolutely secured. Gordon Fee says it this way, Just as God did not tolerate Israel's idolatry, so that of the Corinthians will not be tolerated. We deceive ourselves if we think God will tolerate ours. God did not tolerate the Corinthians' idolatry. He will not tolerate... Uh, I'm sorry, the Israelites' idolatry. He will not tolerate the Corinthians' idolatry, and he will not tolerate our idolatry. Just because God has rescued you and brought you through the sea, and you profess faith in Christ now as a Christian, and you're enjoying the visible blessings of the people of God, do not think that you are safe. Say, oh, pastor. Well, you can listen back to last week. I've already addressed this in some way, shape, or form, but we're going to talk more about it. We deceive ourselves that we think God will tolerate ours. And I would say this. This is hard for me. I'm going to ask a question that I don't truly have the answer to, but I'll, I'll throw it out there just to mess with you. Does it surprise you to understand that most of the Israelites weren't true followers of Yahweh? That they won't be in heaven? That they didn't have the gift of eternal life? When you see that everyone except for two over 20, did not enter the promised land? What does that tell you? What are the implications for you? What are the implications for the church? Now, I want to say this. I don't believe all who died in the wilderness weren't true believers. Moses didn't make the promised land. Moses was a true believer. Aaron didn't make the promised land. Miriam didn't make the promised land. I believe they were true believers as well. Were any of them sinless? No. There's a price to be paid. But I want to say this, I believe it's hard to make a biblical case that anything close to a majority of the Israelites were true believers. This is Paul's point. So he's going to say this 
There's a disqualification for the Israelites. Are we going to now learn from their example? This is his second point. Learn from their example and don't desire evil. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not what? Desire evil. Who Who are the we? Well, it's Paul and the Corinthians. Applied now to us, God's people. Don't desire evil. These are examples for us. Now, it's not the only reason that they happened, but it is one of the reasons they happened and one of the primary reasons they are recorded in Scripture. Out of all the examples that Paul could have used, he uses these because of their direct connection of what was going on in Corinth. He tells the Corinthians, don't be like the Israelites in these ways. So he uses those examples, and now he's got more examples. And so what he says is then, don't desire evil as the Israelites did. And the first thing he says about that is number, uh, verse 7, do not be idolaters. Do not be idolaters. As some of them were. I want you to understand there's, there's, a, there's a play on, that, on those words of all and some throughout this entire passage. But notice when he says don't be idolaters, notice the example and what he says. It's very important. He says, as it is written. So here's a direct quote from the Old Testament. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is quoted from Exodus 32, verse 6. This is what the people of Israel did right after directing Aaron to make the golden calf. They made a golden calf, and they fashioned it to represent Yahweh because they needed a God now to lead them now that Moses was on the, on the mountain and had been gone too long. So now that Moses isn't there, they need a God to lead them. They don't need the cloud or the pillar of fire. Still there. No, what do they need? They need this golden calf. Let's call it Yahweh. We want this God to lead us. This is what they did. This is their idolatry. Now notice that Paul connects the Corinthians' idolatry with the Israelites' idolatry, specifically to eating and drinking in the presence of the golden calf. Paul says they were idolaters, and then he doesn't quote anything about making the golden calf. The verse he quotes is, they ate and they drank and they rose up to play. Do you think he's just kind of missing the point? He says eating and drinking as a form of idolatry because what were the Corinthians struggling with? Eating and drinking in an idol's temple in their spiritual liberty in Christ. And what does Paul say that is? That is idolatry. These Corinthians are acting like the Jews who claim to be followers of Yahweh, but they're eating and drinking in front of an idol as if this idol is God, or in the Corinthian sense, well, this idol is nothing. It's the same point. This is idolatry. Don't be idolaters who eat and drink in the presence of idols as a part of an idol worship ceremony. This is his connection back to everything he's been saying in chapters 8 and 9. And he chooses this quote to tie it directly to what some of the Corinthians were doing. Some of the Israelites did this, and some of the Corinthians were doing it. Do not be idolaters like them. Why not? He's already told you why not. Because some of them were overthrown in the wilderness. Some of them were disqualified. Some of them didn't make the promised land. Don't be like some of them, because if you're like some of them, what will happen to you? I mean, you can follow it. I don't have to even finish the sermon. Let's just go home. No, never mind. He goes to another one. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality. Do not practice sexual immorality. Here Paul is making reference to Numbers 25, verses 1 through 9. 
What is so fascinating about this reference is that the sexual morality was in direct connection with idolatry as well as eating. I want you to see it. It's on the screen. Numbers 25, 1, 2, 3. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. Sound familiar? Sacrifices, temple worship in these idolatrous places. And the people did what? They ate and bowed down to their gods. And they then committed, going on in the passage, verses 4 through 9, sexual immorality in connection to this idolatrous worship. But Paul is talking about sexual immorality in connection to idol worship and eating food offered to idols. Do you see the connection to 1 Corinthians 8 and 9? So it's not sexual immorality kind of in its own context. It's sexual, sexual immorality connected to idolatry as an outflow of idolatry. And this does not mean, it doesn't have to mean, that the Corinthians were having these temple idol services, eating meat offered to idols, and then having sex with prostitutes in the idols, in the temples. It, it could mean that, but probably not. It just means that now as idolaters, as people doing these things, the, the, the heart of the Corinthians and their Hatred of sin has been softened and, and worn down so that they could tolerate, as we talked about in 1 Corinthians 5, sexual morality in their own midst. And idolatrous people are now weakened when it comes to immorality and are susceptible to the temptation of sexual morality, whether it's in a temple worship service or some other time. And it appears it was some other time for the Corinthians. But he's tying it all to idolatry. He then goes on to say, verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test. Do not put Christ to the test. Here Paul alludes to Numbers 21, verses 4 through 7. What happened there? Well, this is where the Israelites were complaining about having to eat manna all the time. So God provided spiritual food from heaven, and they got tired of it. Sounds like your kids, doesn't it? Well, not your kids. They like eating the same thing all the time. Like pizza, hot dogs, hamburgers, and ice cream. I mean... You know, that's, that's four days a week covered, and just repeated, ad nauseum, all right? So that, but these, these Israelites were adult people. They had to have something different every day of the week. Sometimes every day of the month, they got tired of the same food. But I want you to see something here. Why does Paul bring this up? And here's the connection, I believe. The connection is to the Corinthians and their refusal to obey Paul's prohibition from attending cultic meals. Paul said in a letter we don't have in the scripture, stop doing this. And the Corinthians were debating him, arguing against him, and not following his authority. And they were rejecting the authority of their God-given apostle, like the Israelites were rejecting the authority of Moses. And so this putting Christ to the test is a rejection of the apostolic authority of, of Paul connected to the, the uh, authority of Moses over the people of Israel. And their complaining here over the manna is them testing Christ. Therefore, their disobedience of Paul was doing what? Testing Christ. When Christ has given you authority and you reject that authority and argue with that authority and go against that authority, that's a test not of only the pastor or the elders or God-given authority of parents. It's against Christ. That's the connection. Eating and drinking again is the connection. Do you see the interpretive grid for the Old Testament? In testing Yahweh, in testing the God of Israel, they were testing whom? 
Christ. Christ is Yahweh. Christ is the God of Israel. This is Trinitarian language. Jesus Christ is Yahweh of the Old Testament. But Jesus Christ is not the Father, who is also Yahweh of the Old Testament. The Father and the Son, along with the Holy Spirit, share the same nature, the one nature of Yahweh, so both can be referred to as Yahweh, yet separate in person, unified, unified in nature. One nature, two, three persons, the Trinity. Here it is. The Yahweh of the Old Testament is Christ, not just the Father. So when you test Yahweh, you test Christ. Number four, do not grumble. The greatest, I mean, there's, <laughs> you say, well, what is he referring to here? Well, if you recognize and you've read the Old Testament, you know, the Israelites grumbled all the time. So which one of the grumbling times is Paul referring to? The greatest act of grumbling and of grumbling rebellion is recorded in Numbers 14. Numbers 14, where the Israelites grumble against Moses and Aaron when they refuse to obey God in entering the promised land. Now the destruction that comes, notice this, they grumbled and were destroyed by the destroyer. The destruction of the people of Israel when they grumbled against Moses and Aaron and did not enter the promised land didn't come immediately. But what did come immediately was the promise to destroy all of them in the wilderness until all of them over 20 were dead. I want you to see that in Numbers 14, 26 to 29. It's on the screen. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. They grumbled against God, and they were destroyed by the destroyer in 40 years of wilderness wandering. Don't be like the Israelites. Now, what does that have to do with the Corinthians? Well, it has to do with the idea that the Corinthians were grumbling against Moses, who stands in, again in the place of Yahweh, stands in the place of, of Christ. The Corinthians were grumbling against Paul, who was their representative of Christ to them. Now he goes on to say this, but the, but the, the main point there is the, the, the end result. The end result, destruction, death, dying in the wilderness. He again wraps this section up by repeating what he said before. These things happened to them for our example. They were written down for our instruction. They aren't written down merely as ancient history, though they are true history. They weren't written down merely as lessons for the Jewish people before Christ. They were written down for whose instruction? Whose instruction? They were written down for the instruction of Christians. How? They were written down for the instruction of the Corinthians primarily, or first of all, but also for us. So what's the main point? He says all this to make one point. Here's the main point. Warning Warning, warning. This entire point is a warning. If you're an arrogant, presumptuous Corinthian who is committing the same sins as the Israelites, you're in danger of falling away from Christ and not gaining eternal life. Where do I see that? Verse 12. Therefore, notice everything he said now gets summarized here. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You're a Corinthian Christian. You have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. That's what you profess. 
You have been baptized by water immersion as a demonstration of your faith in Christ. You are a member of the church, and every week or every month or every year, whatever, how often they did it, when they participated in communion, you are there. You're taking the, 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 the body of Christ in the representation of the bread and the wine. You're there. You have all of these visible blessings. You're a part of the church. Just like all of the Israelites. And his summary is this. Therefore, to him that thinks he stands. What does he mean by that? Therefore, to the one who in presumptuous arrogance thinks that no matter how he lives, no matter how many temple ceremonies of the idols he goes to, no matter how many idolatrous worship services he participates in, he's still securing Christ. Because he's been baptized. He takes communion. Can you throw in some other things that Christians bank their eternal security on? I prayed the prayer. I walked the aisle. I'm a member of the church. My parents are Christians. Fill in the blank. He takes these very visible things, these very visible uh, uh, sacraments or ordinances of the church to demonstrate that even in the most visible things, some of them didn't make it. So Corinthians, if you think that you stand, if you are absolutely confident that you are a Christian, not based upon any security that comes from the word of God, but based upon the fact that you participate in these visible outward things, what's the warning? For anyone who thinks he stands, what? Take heed lest you fall. Who fell? The Israelites fell. All of them fell and died and had their bodies scattered in the wilderness. Now this is, again, not simply physical death. This is my point. Now here's where it, it fits. What do we do with this warning? Christian, church member, person who's been baptized, person who's professed faith in Christ, person who takes communion, what do we do with this warning? We listen to it and we heed it with absolute sincerity. You must hear the warning. He takes 11 verses to get to the point of verse 12, which gets connected back to chapter 9, verse 27. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should die in the wilderness. Lest after preaching to others, I might be destroyed by the destroyer in the wilderness. Lest after serving in Sunday school, being an elder, being a deacon, serving God for decades, I might not make the promised land. Why? Because I'm an idolater who grumbles against Christ and who walks away from Christ in this way. So do not stand in arrogant, presumptuous self-confidence that because of this external thing or that external thing, there's no way you will make it to heaven. Now I'm saying all that and I've hammered it for a while. I hammered it last week. I'll hammer it again today. Why? Because Paul did, so you can blame him for this. And God put it in the Word of God, so here we are. I've said all that, and now I want to have a but. I want to, I want to say something else. But this does not change what I'm saying. This is not a contrast that undoes, undoes everything I've said. But as Christians, we do not allow this warning to frighten us into living in fear of God's inability to keep us from falling away. We do not allow this warning, we take the warning absolutely seriously, but we do not allow it, allow it to frighten us into living in fear of God's inability to keep us from falling away. The warning is for the arrogant, presumptuous Christian who thinks that they can commit all the sins of the ancient fathers and still be confident of the gift of eternal life. I can walk into an idol's temple. 
I can be a part of an idolatrous worship service. I can eat the food sacrificed to this idol. I can even commit sexual morality as an idolater. And guess what? I'm saved. I prayed the prayer. I wrote the date of my Bible. I walked the aisle. I got baptized. I take communion. I'm going to heaven despite all of the evidence to the contrary that I'm an idolater who's going to be destroyed before they make it to heaven. That's the warning. If that's you, repent and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Now notice the means of standing and the means of not falling is not confidence in the doctrine of eternal security. If you are truly going to stand and not fall away, it's not because you believe in eternal security. Just because you are convinced that a Christian can never lose their salvation doesn't mean that you have been saved. Just because you took all the visible steps of Christianity doesn't mean that you will go to heaven. Have you not learned anything from the Israelites? That's the warning. Read the Old Testament and see how many of them did make it. And then check yourself, check your own salvation, and see if you are living in presumptuous sin, living as an idolater, while professing faith in Christ, and doing all the external things. Being truly saved and being truly a Christian transforms your life. So when God says, go into the land, you say, yes, there's giants in the land. But God has told us he will give us the victory. He will give us a land. We believe him. By faith, we will obey him no matter what. We don't grumble against our leaders and say, why did you take us out in the wilderness to kill us? And God says, oh, that's what you think I was doing? Well, guess what? So be it. Self-fulfilling prophecy, you will die in the wilderness, and your kids will get the blessings. What has happened that has transformed us to be faithful people who, who are faithful to God, trusting God, trusting it because he's transformed us, not just trusting in external salvation or external evidences? So Paul gives the warning to these arrogant, presumptuous Corinthians who are committing the same sins as the Israelites. But what does he have to say to those who hear this warning and are fighting temptation? What about those who are fighting temptation and have begun to doubt God's eternal power to keep them from falling? Anytime I warn Christians, there will be some who are truly Christians who are starting to wonder about their own position with Christ. Good. <laughs> I don't shy away from that. I can't help it. It's in the scripture. But for those who are truly saved, who begin to doubt for the wrong reasons, begin to struggle with this, what does God do immediately after the warning? He gives a blessed promise. And here's the blessing of God's promise, point two. It does not nullify everything he said. Please hear that. And what's the promise to the Corinthians? That you will be tempted. First of, the first part of the promise is you will be tempted just as the Israelites were. Now, you say, that's a blessed promise? Hey, Christian, read the Old Testament and recognize that all the temptations that came to the people of God in the Old Testament are going to come to you in the New Testament. You say, that's good news? You mean you're going to be tempted to grumble? You're going to be tempted to complain? You're going to be tempted to be idolatrous? You're going to be tempted by all these other things? Yes, you will, just as the Israelites were. So but don't be surprised by temptation. Be prepared for temptation because temptations will come. They are a part of the Christian life. Why is that good news? Is because being tempted to commit all the sins listed above does not mean that you aren't a Christian. Being tempted doesn't mean you're not a Christian. So you can hear all these warnings and say, wait a second, I've been tempted to grumble. I've been tempted to go back to my old ways. I've been tempted to be an idolater. I've been tempted to turn away from Christ or test Christ. Yes, 
Welcome to Christianity. But that temptation alone doesn't mean you're not a Christian. The question is, what will you do with that? These temptations overtake, come upon Christians. No temptation has overtaken you, but is not common even to all men, but common to Christians. Don't have your confidence in God shaken by the appearance of temptation. That's the point. Don't have your confidence where? In God shaken by the appearance of temptation. Because these are common temptations. Common. So many Christians think that they are alone in their trials and temptations. They think that they are the only ones who go through these things. Good news. Your situation is not unique. (laughs) So all the struggle, all the temptations, all the things that come your way, they're not unique. You're not the only one. Those are common. I'm not sure that really makes it good. It makes it better. You know, hey, you've got cancer. Well, don't feel so bad. A lot of people have cancer. That doesn't make me feel any better about my cancer. But it does in the sense of this, when you start to think you're the only one who has to go through these hard things, trials or temptations. You're the only one who has to face these things. You're the only one who has to be faced with sexual temptation. No, Joseph did. Jesus did. Others did. You're not the only one. It's not unique to you. Others have faced these temptations, and what have others done? They succeeded. Others here have faced the same temptations as you, and they have said no. The good news is, They can help you if you ask for help. Here it is. We think that we're the only ones who face these things. We think no one else has gone through what we're going through. We think we're the only ones, and so we think no one can give any help. And we don't want to share it because we think that the temptation alone demonstrates we might not be a Christian. No, that's not the point. Get help. Talk to somebody. Temptations are common, and they will come. But God is faithful. God is faithful. Jesus Christ is the faithful God. He is the ever-present cloud of direction and guidance, always there, never leaving us or forsaking us. He is the daily manna, sustaining us every day through every trial and temptation. He is the rock, always there to refresh us, just at that moment that we think we can't go on any longer. He is our faithful God. He is our faithful Redeemer. He is our faithful Sustainer. And in His faithfulness, what does He promise about this temptation that will come? First thing he promises is that no temptation he allows is unbeatable. No temptation he allows is unbeatable. You have no excuse when you sin. Every temptation he allows to come your way is beatable. It is not beyond your ability. You cannot say, I cannot say no. Now, you might read this and say, beyond his ability like beyond God's ability, but that's not what it says. Now, that doesn't mean that you can do it in your own ability alone. Absolutely not. Any ability that you have to overcome temptation will come from God, His Holy Spirit working into you, in you. But this, I believe, is pointing to the truth that you have the ability to defeat the, the temptations that come into your life. It's not beyond your ability no temptation, no particular temptation has overtaken you. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability to deal with your temptation. You might not have the ability to defeat the temptations that come into someone else's life, but that doesn't matter to your life. You see some things that some Christians go through, the temptations, the trials, the struggles, and you say, if that happened to me, I don't know what I would do. But guess what? You don't have to have the ability to overcome their temptations. 
You have to have the ability to overcome your temptations. That's, I believe, the point that Paul is making here. And do you have that ability? Do you have that ability? Every temptation that comes into your life, you have been given the ability to overcome, to say no? Do you have that ability? So you're like, which one does he want? In Christ, do you have that ability? Yes. Don't take Christ out of it, but notice you have it. It's not like some supernatural ability out there where Christ will somehow swoop in and save you from the temptation in that way. The ability is your ability in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. That's the ability, but it's your ability. Because what happens so many times is that we think the next part means something that it does not mean. But with the temptation, he will always also provide the way of escape. So God always provides an escape. The emphasis is amazing. The Israelites had no excuse. The Corinthians have no excuse. You have no excuse. God will always provide what? The way of escape. Now notice, this is the problem with the ability in you, and the next part, to endure it, that we think the escape means we get taken to the Red Sea, and we're there, and we're crying out to God for salvation, and God sends a mighty wind and blows all of the Egyptians away, and God saves us from the temptation to grumble and complain or to turn away. No, what does God do? He led them by the cloud right to that very spot and said to them, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. But what? I can't see a way out. I always think that if God is going to save me from temptation, here's the temptation, it's coming, it's coming, and I'm, I, don't, I have the ability, and God just takes it away. I don't have to worry about fighting it. I don't have to worry about enduring it. No, it doesn't happen that way. God says, trust me, I'm going to part these waters and you're going to, by faith, walk between these massive walls of water. That's your escape. You will endure through it. So the temptation doesn't magically disappear because God's ability is not out here just sweeping away all the temptation before it can finally get to you. The temptation comes right up to you, smacks you right in the face, and God has given you the ability through his spirit to Make your way through it because he provides a way to say no, a way to be rescued, a way to escape. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common. But God is faithful. He's faithful. He will always provide a way to escape that you may be able to do what? Endure it. The way out is through. The way out is through it. No temptation goes on forever. This is the point. No temptation goes on forever. You are able to endure that's the way of escape, enduring. You can, you can endure the temptation that comes your way, every temptation. The way out of temptation is through enduring the temptation by trusting God through it and not sinning, not giving in. Here it is. So many Christians know this verse. How many of you have this verse memorized? I mean, maybe not on purpose, but you've, I mean, once I started saying, you know, yep, 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 yep. How many of you had it memorized in context? How many of you knew the context of the temptation and the trials that God has said he would make a way to escape from? How many of you understood the warning that came in verse 12? Now, some of you heard that verse. You know that verse, maybe, as a warning. But did you know the warning in context? We have to be careful at yanking verses out of context so that we understand what the temptations are and what the escape is. So here's how we apply it to the people of Israel and we learn from it ourselves. 
instead of fearing Moses' long absence on the mountains, the Israelites should have trusted what God said and endured the temptation to turn to a false god and make an idol who would lead them. They should have trusted upon God and waited upon the Lord until he provided. But instead, they made their own way of escape. They provided themselves their own God and they became idolaters. Do you see the temptation and the escape that was provided? But they didn't take it because they couldn't wait for God. Sounds like Saul, King Saul, couldn't wait for Samuel to show up. He's going to do it his own way. Also, instead of doubting God's love and care and grumbling against his provision, they should have trusted in the goodness and kindness of the Lord and thanked him for his daily provision and waited upon him. If he wanted to give them some meat, he'll give them meat, but be happy and thankful for the manna. There's a way of escape. Instead of doubting that God would give them the victory over the giants of the promised land, they should have trusted God to give them the victory and obeyed his command to go in. God had provided a way of escape through the temptation, but instead they were tempted to turn away from God and reject Yahweh, and that's what they did. And the Corinthians are being tempted to turn away from Christ and reject Christ, and that's what some of them will do. You who think you stand, take heed, lest you fall. But God, for every true Christian, will always give you all that you need to say no to every temptation, especially the temptation of turning away from Christ. This does have an application to daily temptation. But its greatest importance to the exegesis and the interpretation of the passage is the temptation is to turn away from Christ and not make it to heaven and become an idolater. That's the temptation that God will provide a way to escape for all of those who are truly his. And that's a blessed promise. If you are truly Christ, if you are his child, he will keep you from falling in the wilderness. He will keep you from turning away from Christ. And he will do that by providing the way of escape through temptation to turn away from him. And you won't do it. It's not some magical thing that will happen out there. It will happen in you. It will happen through you. And God will do it because he is faithful to his promise. So two things in conclusion. Heed the dire warning. Arrogant presumption puts you in danger of falling away from Christ. If your confidence is not in Christ... It's not in the right things that God has done in your life. If you have arrogant presumption, you are in danger of falling away from Christ. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not enough to guarantee your eternal salvation. And then trust the great promise. Your faithful God will always provide an escape from the temptation to turn away from Christ. We're going to sing a closing song, one of my favorite new songs. I've got a lot of favorite new songs, so just add it like the 35 or so. It's the fact that you will not keep yourself from falling. Christ will keep you from falling. You will not cause yourself to persevere to the end. Your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will give you the power and strength to persevere to the end. Our confidence in our eternal salvation, our new life, is not found in us, in our ability. It's found in Christ. So we have to take the warning seriously and we have to believe the promise so that we can sing with great fervor and great joy this closing song, He will hold me fast. If you're truly His, He will hold you fast. If you're not truly His, like many of the Israelites, you will fall away on the way there. You will turn away. You will die in the wilderness. But the good news is, for anyone who recognizes they're not truly His right now can be His today. Trust in Christ Repent of your sin. Turn to him. No matter what you were trusting in the past, you can be saved today. Become his, held secure by Christ's hand. Let's stand and sing.